0: The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Robbie Gallaty of Replicate led a track called "Creating and Sustaining a Disciple Making Movement." Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. Now here's today's track session.
1: Chris Swain, for those who don't know, is the director of Replicate, um, was mentored by a guy named Ronnie Floyd. You guys may have heard of Pastor Ronnie. Uh, Years ago, served on uh, church staffs, then went to LifeWay for a season of time, and then uh, asked him if he wanted to come help lead Replicate, about what, two years ago, Chris? Three years ago, I know. I was thinking it's three, but I'm like, wow, is it three? Three years ago. And Chris said, I'll come just so I don't have to fight the traffic from Hendersonville through Nashville. Has anybody been in that traffic lately? Wow, we drove it this morning. But uh, Chris is doing a phenomenal job, and Chris is the co-host with me on our podcast. Anybody familiar with our Replicate? Who hasn't heard of our Replicate podcast? Okay, it's not that good. So uh, (laughs) uh, basically, Chris and I... um, we just talk about all things discipleship, so it's Making Disciples uh, is the name of the podcast. So, um, and then my wife, Candy, in the back, anybody heard her session as well? Okay, yeah, she is actually the, the disciple maker of the family. Uh, Candy was making disciples uh, before we met, which is really cool how God brought us together. We we're both on this track of making disciples, and we kind of came together. Her first book, which I've really pushed her to write, and she's I, I obviously been working on it, but I really pushed her, You Need to Write, because let's be honest, they're not, and the ladies know this, there are not a lot of books out there for ladies on how to make disciples, right? Like there's a lot of Bible study book. And when I believe in, no offense to the guys, when you get ladies in your church or your context to see the, the value of making disciples through the Bible and not just filling in blanks of a book you'll put on a shelf, no offense, they already have this discipline programmed in, and so they actually become better disciple makers than men because they're already predisposed to that kind of context. So Lifeway already warned me. Uh, Candy and I have a book coming out the same time uh, in February, February fifteenth. Both of our books come out, and Lifeway has already said you need to understand her books can outsell probably every book you've ever written, right? So, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. So. But her book's called Disciple Her, which is kind of a cool title on playing on disciple Um Okay, here's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to give you stuff um, that we normally just teach in our cohort. So this is fresh stuff. If you've ever heard me talk before, this is going to be fresh stuff. Uh, and um, it's going to it's going to be practical stuff you can go back and put in your context immediately. Because I'm real big on practical. You can hear a lot of theory, and that's great. You hear a lot of philosophy, that's great but I wanna know how does it work, right? How does this work in our context? So pastoring a local church for um, over 10 years now, I've had the privilege of just implementing this in a smaller context. First church was 65 people, South Louisiana on the bayou, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Uh, then I went to Brainerd Baptist in Chattanooga, which was a little larger context and real high church, choir, orchestra, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, Wednesday night implemented it there, and then now at Long Hollow, which is just north of here, uh, implemented it there. So what I, I'm saying that to say it works in the church context. Why? Because we don't have a monopoly on making disciples. This is Jesus's model, right? Like my message today, which I just finished last night working through it, I'm going to make this statement that we can't expect to experience the ministry of Jesus and divorce ourselves from the method He used. Okay, now think about that. Like, we can't have the blessings or experience or want the blessings or think we can have the blessings of the ministry of Jesus and do something different than he did. Like, not only are Jesus' words inspired, wouldn't you agree his methods inspired, right? So here's what I want to do. This is going to be an encouraging section up front, and then we'll kind of get into the, to the meat of it. Go to Matthew chapter 12, if you have a Bible. Matthew chapter 12. Um, this is the shift in Jesus' ministry. Um, so if you study the Bible, uh, particularly the New Testament, you want to study the New Testament chronologically. We have a new Bible reading plan coming out, uh, As Chris to bring me. This is hot off the press. Uh, this is our Foundations Bible reading plan. How many people have not heard of the Foundations? As you can see, it's wildly popular. No. <laughs> um, this is a 260-day reading plan. We did one for the whole Bible where you read not four to five chapters a day seven days a week no days off if you go on vacation poor ezekiel gets lumped out because who's going to catch up on 32 chapters right let's be honest you're cruising through genesis in january you're flying through exodus in february the wheels come off with leviticus in march can i get an amen like if we're honest if we're honest so candy and i over the course of eight months we put together a chronological plan through the Old Testament. You don't read every passage of the Bible, but you read the picture of the meta narrative of Scripture where you get an understanding by reading one to two chapters a day, five days a week, off on the weekends for catch up days. The, the plan was uh, really widely accepted. So Lifeway came back and said, Would you guys do a New Testament plan? And here's what's cool about the New Testament. And someone came to me one time at a conference and said, And it's 260 days, and people say, "Why I wish it was 250. I would have got a deal from Ford, but it didn't work. But it's a joke. 260 are five days a week off on the weekends out of the 365 is 260. Somebody came to me at a conference and said, do you know there are 260 chapters of the New Testament? Like, who knew, right? 260 (laughs) chapters. And so, so then they said, why don't you put a plan in the New Testament together, reading one chapter a day? I said, you don't need me to tell you. Just read one chapter a day. Yeah, right. But what we felt like we, yeah, what we could bring to the table is we put the plan together chronologically. So here's how it works. You start with Luke, you go through Acts. As you're journeying through the life of Paul, when Paul goes to Corinth, you read Corinthians. When Paul goes to Galatia, you immerse yourself in Galatians. When Paul goes to Ephesus, you're going to read. So that's how it works. Uh, the gospels book in the, the plan. So this is hot off the press out Uh, just another plan but you read chronologically and when you read Matthew 12 and 13 this is the shift in Jesus's ministry where he turns from just teaching the crowds to focusing on discipling the 12th and this is where in Matthew 13 where Jesus will begin to speak in parables from this point on so he does not speak in parables prior to this and in Matthew 13 it shows us he speaks in parables to close the message off from the masses, in a sense, right? So why does he get in trouble? Pop quiz, Matthew 12. Why is Jesus in trouble in in verses 22 and following? What what do you think? Not everybody at once. So he heals a man, drives out a demon. The religious leaders are there and they basically question him and they say, that's not of God, that's of what? Beelzebub. Beelzebub. So here's what they do. They say, you're not casting out by the power of God. You're casting out by the power of Satan. And Jesus says this line, a house divided cannot stand against itself. And here's what he's saying. If I was of Satan, why would I be casting out myself? And it's at this moment that Jesus basically shifts his ministry. And in my opinion, this is a long conversation. Don't get sidetracked on this. Jesus says, you guys have committed the unpardonable sin. This is a long explanation, but I don't think I don't know if I should say this because it's going to mess you up. You're going to get sidetracked. I don't think a person today can commit the unpardonable sin. And I've written about this in a book called The Forgotten Jesus. You can go look it up. But basically, there are three times in Matthew 12 where Jesus says this line. This wicked, what? An adulterous generation. He says it again. This wicked and adulterous generation. So, the unpardonable sin, I think, is the mass rejection of Jesus. Here's why. Because they are rejecting the only means by which they can be saved. And here's what they're doing. They're calling a clean vessel unholy. And if the only means to be saved is Jesus and you reject Jesus, there's no hope. Right? And it's at this moment, Matthew 12, Jesus begins to speak in parables. And we're getting somewhere. Jesus gives parables, or gives this parable, which here's what's cool about this parable. This is how we interpret every other parable. Okay? Who wants to read verses 3 through 9? Somebody read Ma- Matthew 13, 3 through 9. And I want to write on the board just kind of show you the picture here. Okay. Now, here's what Jesus shows us. There are four different soils here. And what he's saying is, now he goes later and interprets it and shows us, you know, some some choke out because this is the world, the possessions, the enemy, you know, trials come, the enemy takes it away. But what Jesus shows us is three of the soils are what? Saved or lost? Are these saved people or lost people? Lost people. Here's why. Adrian Rogers used to say this. A faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. I like that. And only Adrian Rogers can say it that way, right? And here's what he was saying. He was saying, your faith, if it doesn't finish to the end, faulted from the beginning or had a fault from the beginning, meaning you weren't a Christian to begin with. And so what Jesus shows us is this. When we go out and make disciples, when we go out and preach the gospel, watch this, three-fourths of the time, we're going to be speaking or teaching people who were lost, Right? or three fourths of the congregates of, of our church, three fourths of them, if you take a broad kind of a stroke, are gonna be lost. Only one fourth of the people are actually going to be believers. Now let me ask you, leader in the church, how much time do we spend in these soils? Anybody? How many complaints come from our people from this soil? You ever get complained at before? Anybody ever had a negative email written to them? Anybody ever had a blog started against them, me? Anybody had anonymous emails sent against them? Me? I mean, I had had all that. Well, normally what you're dealing with is three-fourths time. So what happens is, I want to show you, Jesus realizes, He shows us, that He doesn't invest His time here. For the rest of His ministry, He's going to devote, Eugene Peterson said, 90% of His time to 12 men. And the Lord convicted me about this early on in my ministry. Because as a new Christian, I was spending, nine, or new pastor, I was spending 90% of my time with people complaining. And, and I'm not saying you don't spend time with these people because that's a shepherding opportunity. But Jesus invested 90% of his time in these 12 men, okay? So that's just kind of a background to how we think, and I wanna encourage you with that too. Find some people to invest in and then invest in those who wanna be invested. That's one of the cool things about discipleship. Discipleship not only grows believers deeper, but it reveals lostness in people who think they're saved. Have you ever had somebody you've invested in? I remember one of my first groups, uh, Emanuel Baptist Church, Nathan Brown, his dad was a deacon at, at our church who went on to pastor a church in town. His mom was a teacher at a Christian school. And I thought for sure, and Nathan was raised in the church. I said, he's gotta be a Christian. So my first discipleship group, don't, don't do this, but I used to do this. We used to study the big blue book of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You remember that book? Which I loved. I mean, I mean who doesn't love the incommunicable qualities of God? Or the communicable... You know, and some of my guys would finish the group after like year one. I'm like, what would you guys think? They said, we loved every minute of it. I said, what are you going to do with it? We can't do a thing with it, but we loved every, you know, <laughs> got to make course correction. But anyway, so Nathan and I are studying and we get through those qualities of God and we get to like week six or seven and we talk about the person and work of Christ. And he stops me six weeks in reading the Bible, memorizing scripture. He's like, man, I, I got to stop you. He said, this Jesus you're talking about, I don't even think I know him. So that's what's cool about discipleship. Not only, and you've had this before, not only do you grow people deep in their faith, but you reveal the lostness and the hardness of their own heart, right? So here's what I want to show you. How do we gauge effectiveness in a church context or a ministry context? Write this diagram down, or draw this down if you can. This is how, as a pastor of a church, uh, as a ministry leader, you can use this. This is how I gauge effectiveness in our organization. So if you're a women's leader or men's director or a life group or a Sunday school teacher, this is how we gauge effectiveness. Everything in a church can be divided into three sections. On ramps, pathway, off ramps. Okay, On ramps, pathway, off ramps. What are some on ramps in a church context? What would you guys, what would you ladies say? Sunday worship be one. Sunday worship. What's another uh, to get people into the life of your church? What's another one? Uh, small groups could be yes. Yeah, small groups would be both, but small groups as for us, yes, it could be because it's evangelistic. Small group. What's another one? Fall festival. Fall festival. Well, we're getting close to that one, huh? What else? Softball team. Softball. Oh yeah, uh, sports. Upward basketball. Uh, men's event, right? Women's event. Um, Sermon series, right? Okay, so these are all on-ramps. These are getting people onto or into the pathway of your church. The pathway, and I'll talk about this in a moment, is what we call our life groups and our D groups, okay? Life groups would be open groups. Um, We typically do them in the home. If you're going to stay for a session, I would stay Gus Hernandez, who's on our staff and on our Replicate team. He's over all things discipleship at Long Hollow. He has helped us move from. Um, well, I'll show you this in a. Well, I'll show you that in a second. You'll see. But Gus is going to show, is going to teach you how we move people into life groups, which move to D groups. Uh, open groups they meet in the homes normally, although we do have some on campus. Um, they are mixed gender, meaning men and women uh, meet together, and they are evangelistic. In the sense of. This is how we invite. Because here's the thing, let's be honest. The day and age, and this is what I love about the discipleship tribe, is like we used to be considered like the weird people because people would look at us and say, you know, they just want to sit in a room and read the Bible and that's all they want to do. You've ever heard that before? But now here's what's happening, which is funny. Those guys who used to throw stones at us are now coming to us and saying, the day and age 20 years ago when I could open the church, preach a good sermon, have good worship, and expect people to come to me, those days are over. They are over. Like a lost person doesn't wake up and say, I'm an American. I go to church on Sunday. They don't do that anymore. But guess what they will do? They'll come to your home, right? Uh, D-groups. D-groups would be three to five. We've done a lot of research on this. Greg Ogden, who may be at this conference, I think, he has supported this research. He's a good friend, done great research on this. And obviously, Jesus did. Obviously, Jesus had Peter, James, and John. So, what does He know, right? But D-group, the three of five, closed group, uh, gender-exclusive, men with men, women with women. They meet. The groups meet for 12 to 18 months. Here's the big thing, to reproduce. People say, man, we've been doing discipleship for years. We call it Sunday school. I had a lady tell that in uh, Orlando one time. I was teaching on discipleship. And I said, really, ma'am? I said, uh, let me ask you a question. I said, how many... How many of your Sunday school classes have reproduced groups who have then reproduced groups who have reproduced groups? She said, none. We've been meeting for 40 years. I said, with all due respect, thank God the disciples didn't do that, right? Like if they they had every reason to stay together, you would agree. I mean, golly, think about that. The preaching of Peter, that first century group. Man, he's such authority. He's like a Leonard Raven. He just preaches and steps on our stone-toed sandals. I mean, and then John. I mean, John cries every time. We love John's preaching. If they had any reason to stay, it was those 12. But thank God they left because we wouldn't be here today. So there has to be replication, okay? And then what's off-ramps? What's an off-ramp? What's that? It could be start a group, yeah. Start a group. What else? Serve. Serve. Big one. Anybody need more people to serve in their church? Yeah. Or you have, you have all you need, right? This is the pathway. If you want more leaders, if you want more servants, if you want more volunteers, here's the pathway. What else? Volunteers. Missions. Right? Local. Global. What else? Church. church planning. This is part of our strategy. Right. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do a pop quiz. I know you didn't come for this, but here's what I want you to do. If this is A, this is B, and this is C, okay? I want you to list right now your own admission. What is the level of importance in your church, your context, or your ministry? Is it we we do on-ramps really well? And the reason I know this is because we spend a lot of money and a lot of time to get people on the campus. So what I would say, Pastor, is, or I'd say, Robbie, A is number one. We are passionate about missions. Our people give to missions, they go on mission, they serve, that would be C, but we're weak in the area of a pathway. Like we have life groups in Sunday school, but as far as people reproducing their life to, to give the, their life away and invest in others, that would probably be last on the list. I want you to grade yourself right now. Take a moment and do that. No. And here's the thing, there's no right or wrong answers, okay? because what you're going to see is this thing ebbs and flows and even at Long Hollow where I'm at, it's changed. Alright, who would say this is, this is us right here? Who would say this is us? Raise your hand so we could see. Anybody? Okay. Yep. <laughs> this is not the best exercise to do with this crowd, Chris. <laughs> Normally, if I was in a typical church, okay? Typical church, not a discipleship minded group of people. And I'm not saying this is bad because this is where we've been to. This is what I would see. Because the typical church is, we want to get people in the door, and they go out the back. I talked to a pastor uh, yesterday, I was telling Chris, call me from San Diego, mega, mega church. You would know the guy's name if I told you his name. He said, Robbie, we are passionate about evangelism, but people are going out the back doors faster as they're coming in the front. Right? Anybody have that problem? Okay. Uh, Give me another option. Who has a different thing? A B C. Okay, ABC. Who has ABC. Okay, not not anybody near close to the consensus of the room. Okay, what else? Anybody have BAC? B C. Okay, who has BAC? Okay, what what am I missing here? CAB. C-A-B. Okay, CAB. That's another one. Who has CAB? Now we can go on forever, so we're gonna stop. <laughs> like how many? Guys? Okay, here's what I want you to see. I take my staff away every year and this is what we do for an exercise to see where we are because this is what this shows you. This shows you what you're focused on and this shows you what you're weak at, okay? And so what I do with my staff is we go away. Now when I got to Long Hollow, Long Hollow was this, okay? I'd come from Brainerd Baptist, we baptized in a year like 120 people, I guess, 115. We thought that was really good. And, we, and our process is, you know, you go through a process, you meet with somebody, we counsel you. When I was coming to Long Hollow, Candy and I were in the search process, and the team asked me this question. They said, how do you feel about coming into a church that in 2013 baptized over a thousand people? This is what, they, that's what I said. they even heard of this, you know? And they said, in 2014, we baptized almost 1,987. This is what they asked me. Imagine me asking you that. What do you you feel like coming into church uh, of this capacity? And I said, first of all, praise God, right? Praise God for the people that have come to faith in Him and profess baptism. I said, but let me ask you a question. What did you do with the people? Now, here's a little secret what we ran. And I'm, this is no indictment on our church or the past. This is most churches. Most churches. We found out that in the years 2013 and 2014, our church was stagnant in growth. So, we baptized almost 2,000 people. And we were basically flat in our growth. Okay? So, one of the challenges and one of the, one of the confirmations for us going to Long Hollow was somebody came up to me a mentor and he's like hey here's the thing you don't have to teach long hollow the church i'm uh, I'm at now to be evangelistic they already are evangelistic if you could figure out a way to marry a discipleship strategy to an already evangelistic mindset it could be an epic ministry okay so when i came in this is what i inherited acb we were i mean we could do the best big events you can name we'd get hundreds and thousands of people in the door but the question is what next and we never had that answer we were passionate about missions. We would go overseas. We would, we would move our people, but we didn't have a pathway. So when I came in, I swung the pendulum to where? Anybody want to take a guess? B's first. B what? BCA. This is what we did. Okay? So years one to two, I've been here three years now. One to two, this is what we did. Now here's the challenge when you swing the pendulum all the way over there. What's the challenge? You see it on the board. What suffers? A suffers, okay? So now, year three, we just repurpose, and this is what's cool about doing this. We repurposed, and now we're C, I mean, we're A, uh, B, C, okay? We're A, B, C. So this is why I'm telling you this. This is helpful because it shows you kind of how to move and ebb and flow and what needs attention. Any questions on this before we move on? Any insights or, or how we use this? Yeah, because, and Chris was there before I was. Uh, we we were passionate about invita- inviting people to events. We would do sermon series and people would come. So I felt like I didn't have to put a lot of attention there. I felt like we needed a pathway. Like we would say, like we had like most churches, a two pronged approach for, for the church. We had worship, gathering and life groups. And here's what we say at Replicate. You, you need to add one more rung to the two wheel bike. You need to be riding a three wheel bike in a sense because, and I could talk about this, but the discipleship groups, smaller, intentional, accountable groups, this is where life transformation truly happens. Because let's be honest, if this was our life group, which in some churches it could be, a guy's not gonna walk in here with his wife sitting next to him and say, hey, listen, hey, pray for me, I'm struggling with pornography. Ain't gonna happen. A woman's not gonna come in and say, hey, I got a problem with gossiping about the women in this class, just pray for me. Ain't gonna happen. But if you have a group of three to five, Men or three to five women. It won't happen at first, but over time it will. And there's accountability, and there's transparency, and there's replication. So yeah. Okay. So here's how we. Any other questions? Because I want to move on and show you how we use this.
0: Uh, so what was the result by the the bead at first and
1: second year? Uh, okay. This. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Okay. So what we did is we realized that we we needed to put together uh, this pathway. So let me show you how the pathway works. Okay? This is what we did. We implemented a pathway. What I've realized in churches, and you know this, when people in our churches don't know what to do, like, like people come on Sunday, I think, because they want a relationship with God, right? Like they want to hear the voice of God. You came here because you want to hear from God and you want to follow God and you want to, you want to pray and feel like your prayers are heard. The problem with most Christians, the problem with most disciples, they don't know how. Wouldn't you agree? Like they don't know how to grow in their faith. Like what we've told them is worship in Sunday school and you'll grow. I had a lady come up to me. She's 65. She said, hey, uh, when I was at Brainerd, she said, uh, I was there like three months. She said, you're the first person I've ever heard mention the word discipleship in my entire life. And this isn't an anomaly to Brainerd. I mean, this is churches today. Today, when my talk, you're going to hear how many people in America don't know the Great Commission who are, who are Christians. Blow your mind. But uh, she said, but I feel like I've been had. That's what she said. She said, I was told if I could get my kids to worship in Sunday school, they would follow Jesus. And she said, both of them have turned their back on God. I said, ma'am, I don't know all the, all the back story of all that. But it got me thinking that we are missing one element in this process here. Okay, so, the wor- so let me just show you how this works. The worship gathering leads to the life group. The life group leads to the D group and the D group at Long Hollow is change the world. Now, I got this strategy from Jesus, okay? <laughs> and That's why I know it works, so it's not my strategy. I got this from Jesus. Jesus ministered when he was on earth in five distinct groups, okay? Five distinct groups. Uh, He ministered in the crowd, which is the large gathering, Sermon on the Mount, feeding in the 5,000, feeding in the 4,000. Then he ministered to the congregation, which I call the congregation, which was the 120 or the 70, right? Then he ministered to the 12, which was the life group we call, and then he ministered to three. He had a a D group, him, Peter, James, and John. Now, here's what's cool. These guys in this D group were privy to five encounters with Jesus. The rest of them couldn't go to, right? Transfiguration. What else? Garden of Gethsemane. Like Matthew has to be like, again? Like, come on, Jesus. You know, Jesus like, oh, we'll be back. Y'all stay here. We'll be back. And they did it. Like Jesus, had, like people tell I feel, me, I feel bad that, that I'm only discipling three or four people. The church gets mad at me. I said, Jesus had the same problem. Like, you've got to believe. But Jesus knew the, in, in, the power of investing in a few to change the world, okay? So, and then change, okay, so here's the pathway. We just took Jesus' model, and we start here. Here's why we start here. This is the disciple-first mindset. Because I believe if we start with the existing people in our churches, whether it's 30 people, whether it's 50 people, whether it's 5,000 people, if you grow those people deep, they become the greatest evangelists in your church, period. And here's the thing. People people hear me preach on discipleship. They say, "You're not passionate about evangelism." I say, "No, I'm highly passionate about evangelism. I just don't want to be the only evangelist in my church." <laughs> Cuz that's what happens in most churches. The pastor and the staff who are paid do all the work of the evangelist. But when you get your people deep in the word of God, here's what happens. When Jesus is on the mind, Jesus comes out the mouth. See, what's on the mind comes out the mouth. And the problem most people are not sharing their faith in our churches, I think Is that they're not in the Word. They're drawing from an empty well, right? Okay? So here's the pathway Worship leads to life group leads to D group. So this is the pathway we put in place. So this is how I gauge effectiveness from my staff. Not just vertical numbers, although we do count that, but horizontal assimilation, okay? So this is assimilation horizontally. Here's what I mean. We have four categories of how we gauge effectiveness. At Long Hollow this year, we went away, and we always set goals, and I I don't think it's bad. I think it's good to set a goal. Why? Because if you aim at nothing, what? You hit it every time. I had one pastor say, uh, you know, you're you're so formalized with your discipleship process. He's like, "Ah." I like, and he was pastor a pretty large church. He said, I like to be organic. I like it to just flow. He said, I don't even really know what's going on. It's just happening. I said, Sam, with all due respect, that's not what Jesus did. Like, no offense, but Jesus was highly intentional with his process, right? He he took 12 guys, and he taught them seven things over and over. So, this is a process. So, here's what we do. This year, we have a goal that we want to see, by God's grace, 15% increase in worship. Now, that's a big goal. I get this, but let me show you how we're going to get here, prayerfully, God willing. What we realized is that when we got to Long Hollow, this is why you need to hear Gus at 1 o'clock. What time's is Gus? J- just tell him in a minute. Okay, Gus is going to show you, and Gus single-handedly helped do this. Uh, 15% increase here, but this is what happened. When we got to Long Hollow, guess, how many, guess what, what the percentage was of life group to worship. How many, pe- how many of our people in worship were actually in a life group? Because you, know, you and I both know if you want to close the back door, you've got to increase these numbers. Percentage-wise. I would love to say 50. <laughs> 25%. Now, I'm not throwing my, don't email me and don't say Robbie's indicting, I'm not indicting the church. What I'm saying is, this is the reality, right? Uh, And there's a number of reasons for that. We tried to take life groups off campus with a guy we hired and we went from on campus one week, two weeks later, you were off campus and your door was locked and closed. Probably wouldn't have done it that way, but we did it. Uh, And then we brought him back on campus. So it was a lot of things. Uh, Gus moved that number in three years to 50%. 50% of the life groups to worship attendance. But here's what's even more amazing. I share with our church this past year strategy, and watch this, that we realize that since people won't come to worship like they used to, the life groups will be the ministry centers all over our community. So here's what I told our goal, our church. What if we have a life group in every neighborhood in our county? think about that idea. There's 185 neighborhoods in our county, and it's growing now, even more. What if we had a life group in every neighborhood as a ministry outpost to do ministry? So when you do Fall Festival, it's not come to the Christian church to be isolated with a bunch of Christians, no offense. Or come to the Fourth of July celebration with a bunch of Christians and watch fireworks and food trucks, which is fine if you do that. But we said, wouldn't it make more sense to pop fireworks in your own driveway if you can do them if it's legal? Right. Not promoting the, the firing of fireworks in your life. Yeah, but you get what I'm saying. Wouldn't it be better to do it in your home and have lost people who live around you come to your home? So Gus moved this number, which was 42 life groups in the home, to 91 right now, life groups in the home. And we have 104 life groups off campus. Okay? So Gus helped us. Now, this year, our, our goal is, watch this, that we want to move this number to 60%. Okay? So we're going to have, from here to here, 60. Then from here to here, how many people at Long Hollow were in discipleship groups? What percentage? Groups like we talk about, three to five, men with men, women with women. What percentage? 0.5, probably. Okay, Maybe 1%. Let's just say 1%. Um, it's just, now they had a few, but they, it was very small, not formalized, didn't have a plan in uh, and t- and three years, that number is 30%. And you're saying, ah, that's not very impressive. We think it's pretty impressive. 30%, like 30% of our congregation are in small intentional groups. Here's what's even more impressive. 253 of our high school students and middle schoolers are in discipleship groups. Now, why is that important? Because today we live in a day and age where the student pastor, any student pastors in here? Okay, anybody work with students? okay. You guys know, like, we can't go onto the campus like we could 20 years ago, where you could just go preach the gospel, you can do anything, at least not even in Nashville, we can't do it like we used to. But what happens is we have mobilized these 253 students, now, and, and by their own admission, guess when they want to meet? Chris used to lead a group of students. Chris, when did your group want to meet? High school students? Yes. What time did they select? 6.30 a.m. Tuesday morning, July. They picked 6.30. 30. Now, okay. Now, think about this. This is your s- Chris did not like that, obviously. But now think about how cool this is. This is your son. He wants to meet at 6:30 to get in the Word, quote Scripture, talk about what he heard from God in his Bible reading plan, and then Chris sends him into the mission field called school where he becomes the mission. This is what, so, and I want you to get this, everything we do is empowering the people to do the work of ministry. Life groups in the community, it's not come see me the master teacher in a class of 100, it's you facilitate a group of 12 to 14 in your home times 100 or two, you see what I'm saying here? So it's all mobilizing the people. And this right here we, we think we're the most excited about because they become the missionaries on the campus. The goal this year is to move this to 40. And this is us. You can do your own thing. Change the world. Here are the two things we're gauging. How many people are serving in our church, percentage-wise, and how many people go on a first-time trip, local or global? Okay. Now, here's what this strategy does. It not only measures this, it measures this. And here's what we know. When this number increases this way... It is a residual effect backward to this number. They don't teach this in seminary, I'm just telling you. Because here's what they t- teach in seminary grow a mega church. Right? Like 20 years ago. Anybody been to seminary? Okay. Um, in seminary, here's, here, here was the model of success. Think about this 20 years ago, even today probably. The model of success was you need to grow a mega church. Okay? Church over 2,000 people. Here's the problem with that mindset. And here's what we taught a generation of young people and bivocational pastors and and upcoming pastors. We taught pastors to grow a megachurch. How how many times does a megachurch work? Or what percentage of the churches in the world are megachurches? Watch this. 1%. So what do we teach a generation of young pastors and leaders and upcoming ministers? You're going to fail... 99% 99% of the time. You see where I'm going here? Like you're a failure if you don't. The problem with that is Jesus never grew a megachurch, church, right? Like at the end of Jesus' life, this is the greatest man who's ever walked the face of the earth. He can cause the dead to raise, the blind to see, give sight to the blind and the lame to walk. And oh, by the way, if you're out of food, He can produce catfish boys, dinner on the grounds at a moment, this Jesus Christ, right? The greatest orator to ever walk the face of earth. And the problem is at the end of Jesus' ministry, how many people were in His movement, Acts chapter one, the upper room? Outreach Magazine, David's not writing an article on that. Let's just be honest. They're not writing an article on that. But Jesus shows us something I want you to get and we'll open up for questions. He shows us there is greater impact when you focus on the depth of your people and you let God take care of the breath of your ministry. So freeing for us. I mean, I don't grow a church, right? Like I don't wake up every night, every morning and say, man, I want to grow a mega church. What, I, what gets me out of bed is I, I think I want to grow people. And when people grow in Christ, God takes care of the breath of the ministry. That's His doing, right? My doing is to make disciples and to be faithful for that. So, okay, any questions about this? How much time I got left, Chris? Okay, good. I, I think discipleship's more caught than taught, and I think we learn the best through dialogue. So uh, any questions for me or Candy or Chris or, or any questions you guys? Did
0: Jesus do one-on-one?
1: Two, man. Here we go. Dan, you got to go metal now. <laughs> okay. It's a long conversation, but let me... Okay. Um, I was disciple one-on-one by David Platt for six months. Okay. My my story anybody never heard anybody doesn't know my testimony anybody's heard my testimony or who hasn't heard my testimony okay sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I am undiagnosed adhd my poor wife my poor wife i'm like baby i don't she's like you may want to go see about medicine. anyway anyway but i like it like this i mean i got no notes here i got no notes you know it's probably dangerous okay so <laughs> Okay, short testimony, raised Roman Catholic, very religious, South Louisiana, Um, went to church on Sunday, lived like I wanted Monday through Saturday, if I missed church on Sunday, went to confession on Saturday, got a scholarship to play basketball at UNC Greensboro, a girl I'm dating at the time throws a fit, she's going to LSU, she's like, you can't go that far away, and so literally, I opened the phone book and found William Carey College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Has anybody heard of that school? Yeah, I hadn't either. So, I mean, I didn't even know the school, ex- I didn't even know who William Carey was. And uh, I called the coach and he hesitantly let me try for the team, gave me a full round to play basketball. Two weeks into the semester, the girl I'm dating breaks up with me and I'm stuck as a Roman Catholic on the campus of a Southern Baptist College. And for those who don't know, I was the target of every evangelism class on campus. There was a game called Convert the Catholic. I was the deer in the crosshair, okay? I mean, I mean they told me about Christ and I was lost. But I heard the gospel in 1995, and I would reject the gospel, but I would remember that seven years later. Uh, got out of college, and, 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 and um, in, in school I was in a network marketing company, kind of like Amway, at 19. By 21, I had 2,000 people in my downline, uh, customers and people. I thought I was going to be a millionaire by 25. My idols were Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, Les Brown, Omar Perriou, and, uh But the business went bankrupt. It was a pyramid scam. And I went through a series of depression and I decided, a season, I said, I don't want to do anything for business, I, I just want to hang out. And so I took a job as a bouncer at a club. A guy sees me one night, I'm 290 pounds back then, 6'6", he's like, hey man, would you be interested in being the bouncer at my club, downtown New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras? Now, I was doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, anybody familiar with like the UFC? Okay. So this is 98, this is not today. So... The guys I'm training with in the dojo, we don't even have health insurance, and we're making less money to win fights that would even pay for the medical bills. Doesn't make any sense, but... So I'm training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, fighting in the dojo, and a guy says, would you want to be the head bouncer of my club, downtown New Orleans, in the middle of Mardi Gras? I said, yeah, that's what I said, you're going to pay me to fight? I'm in, right? So, took that opportunity, I did that for three months, guy pulls a gun on me, I made a career change, seemed like the right move from bouncing to bartending, right? like the lesser of two evils, outside the club to inside. I'm coming home from work November 22nd, 1999. An 18-wheeler, uh, as, the, as the high rise in New Orleans, if you've ever been there, comes together and then goes up the bridge. The interstate came together, an 18-wheeler came across t- two lanes of traffic, sandwiches my car at 65 miles an hour, 18-wheeler slams me into the guardrail, my seatbelt locks, my back torques. So I go to the doctor. I'm 22, I'd never taken drugs in my life before. But I'm in pain. And I leave at 22 with Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And uh, you know the story. Within three months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I don't want to make money. I can't train. I can't work. I just want to get high. And uh, I run through the the, the drugs for 30 days and two weeks. And I got to find this way to fulfill this insatiable desire. Friend of mine, so-called friends, like, hey, man, why are you fooling with pharmaceutical drugs? You can buy street drugs. You can buy heroin and cocaine, you can buy it in bulk, you can bag it, sell it, make money for your habit. So I took the, the knowledge from the business world of network marketing, I brought it into the drug world. And I wanna tell you, like in the beginning, we had tons of money. I mean, I was selling ecstasy pills, hundreds and thousands of ecstasy pills, GHB, Special K, which is not a cereal, uh, marijuana, <laughs> I just gotta clarify that. Uh, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and I'm telling you this just to show you how far the Lord's brought me from. Times were good. Um, But then in 2000, I lost my first friend of a heroin overdose, a needle still in his arm. And from 2000 to 2003, I lost eight friends to drug and alcohol-related deaths. Six went to prison. Since that time, 2000, I've lost 15 close friends. I only have two left on the planet. I mean, these are guys I grew up with, live with, house with. But at the time, uh, I ran out of money, as it always happens. Uh, I robbed my own family for $15,000 when my dad wasn't looking. I took his credit card number, I memorized it, and charged $15,000 on the family bank account. i never forget the phone call. It was February 2001. My mom called. She said, we found out about what you did. Dad is upset with you. I'm furious. Um, son, don't ever come to this house again. And, and if you know kind of an Italian family, we are already close-knit and tight. And so that was a big deal to be separated from mom and dad. And I hung the phone up. I said, Mom, I don't need you guys. I never did. Hung the phone up, I blew the little bit of money I had and lived hell on earth, in a sense, for the next two and a half months without gas, electricity, and water. It was the hardest season of my life. Uh, but I'll just say this for those in here, because, you know, we all, we all know someone on drugs or alcohol or an addiction. And normally, when I counsel families and I counsel people every week, a perpetual drug addiction is, is normally the result of an enabler right? Like a mom or a dad who loves the child and loves the kid, wants to help, but they were actually hurting and eventually lead to death. And it was the tough love of my mom who saved my life. And here's the line I tell people, think about this. If you keep being their savior, Jesus never can be. Let I me mean, think about that. Like, why would I need Jesus if I have mom or dad or my husband or a wife? So by God's grace, my two unbelieving parents cut me off. <laughs> uh, hell on earth Long story short, two rehab treatments, one of which was in Tijuana, Mexico. That's another sermon for another day. But anyway, got, got, got back from the second rehab treatment, November 12, 2002, 15 years ago. Prior to 15 years, never read the Bible before in my life, barely went to church. But I was desperate. I was in my room, 2002, and I cried out to the Lord because I remembered, watch this, the sown seeds that were sown in my life seven years before. Don't ever underestimate the power of sown seeds in the hardened heart of a man. God brought that to fruition. I got on my knees and I said, God, uh, if you're real, I'm going to give my life to you, surrender my life to you. And um, if you save me, because I was ready to die, $180, $200 a day, heroin and cocaine addiction. If you save me, I'm going to go after you with the same intensity I did to get high. Now, if you know an addict, you don't get in the way of them trying to get high. And people look at me now and they say, what, like, what, what was the secret to, to, to how God's used you and where you are today? And here's what I tell people. I've never gotten over being saved. Like I've never got, like the, people say, who's the most surprised about you being saved? It's me. Because I've seen it all. Like mom and dad have seen a lot. And I think the problem with church life, and I just want to speak this with a lot of humility to you. The challenge for many of you, and, and even me today, 15 years as a Christian, is that we let the church institutionalize and domesticate us so much that we forgot that one day we were lost. And Christ saved us, right? So I wandered for the next eight months. I mean, I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't know how to pray. I knew the road prayers like, Our Father and Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed you know, I knew those. I didn't know how to memorize scripture. I didn't know I should. And I'm at Edgewater Baptist Church. I'm a Christian for eight months and a guy who looks about 12 back then named David Platt. Now he looks about 20 now. And uh, my staff, Chris and the staff laughed at me, but David stood at my wedding and we lost everything in Katrina, but my uncle comes to our house last week. Uh, we renewed my parents' 50-year vows, I got to, which was a special time. But he's like, I've got your wedding video. And the only person I wanted to see was David Platt, just to take a picture and prove he looks 12, right? So, but he looked 12, uh, and he was a seminary student. And he's like, hey man, do you want to meet once a week, study the Bible, memorize scripture, and pray? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have, when do we meet? And for the next two years, David Platt invested his life in mine. He baptized me, stood in my wedding, took me on my first mission trip. I became his assistant. And people always say, what was it like being discipled by David Platt? Like, like did you study the finer tenets of soteriology? Like, did you study justification by faith? And, I, and we did, obviously. But I really can't tell you anything I learned from David specifically, but I'll tell you what I remember from David, how he lived. See, what he did is he emulated a life of discipleship, and then he expected me to do the same. It's a great principle for us as makers. write this down, you can't expect from others what you're not emulating yourself, right? Like we can't expect people to do something we're not doing. So all that to say, David Platt invested in my life and so uh, I'm the product of of his discipleship. Now I don't know how I got off on that, what was the question again? (laughs) Totally forgot. There's a reason for that. Okay, one-on-one, okay. You see why I preach with notes. You see why I preach with notes, right? Okay, so <laughs> you know what they say about addiction. The first step is awareness. So, or the first step of a problem is awareness. Right? Okay, here's what, here. So David decided me one-on-one for six months, and then we opened it up to a group of about seven. And from here, there on out, I disciple people normally in a group. Now, here's why. If you disciple one-on-one, praise God. I would rather you disciple one-on-one than not disciple at all. But if we have a choice at Replicate, here's what we say. We would opt for three to five, and here's why. I wrote a book called Rediscovering Discipleship. I don't know if they have that here. They may have it in the bookstore. But I have a whole chapter on this. And the chapter is uh, one for all, but not one at a time. I think it's the title of the chapter. And I list seven or eight reasons why, if you have a choice to opt for three to five. Let me give you a couple. And if you're one-on-one, I'm not offended. I'm not trying to grind an ax with you. Praise God for it. But if you have a choice, let me give you seven eight reasons. Number one, when you're expecting your people to disciple someone, the thought of a man sitting eyeball to eyeball, Dan, across the space from another man at a foreign place to pull back the dark, deep secrets of one's life is terrifying. It's terrifying. Like, like you, I, don't, I barely know you. And we're going to talk about deep But if you put four or five guys in the room... We watch football games like that. We hang out like that. And it's not, you don't have the pressure of leading the group because now you're facilitating a group, okay? Number one. Number two is the pressure of a ping pong match. One-on-one, if you're the leader, you have to keep the ball in play, right? So like, Patrick, how was your day? Uh, How's your wife? She's good. Okay, okay. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? so. It's pressure, I promise you. I've done this before. It's pressure. Number three is one-on-one can become a counseling session. And you know this. And discipleship, is there counseling? Absolutely. But it's not all counseling. And I find if I do one-on-one every week, it's a a spiritual dump every week. My life's falling apart, my marriage. When you have a group of guys, the guy who you're discipling is now in a group, and it's not about him anymore. It's about the group, okay? Number four is there's a built-in accountability system with a group. When I was decided by David Platt, we memorized the book of Romans together. He said, we're going to start with Romans 1. I was only a Christian for eight months and only removed from drugs for about eight months. And David said, we're going to memorize Romans 1. I said, okay, what verse? He said, no. Romans 1. All the chapter and then Romans 2 and then we'll move to Romans 8. And so I gave David this five-minute discourse on the effects of drugs and alcohol. And you remember that commercial. David, this is your brain with the egg. <laughs> like I know you hadn't seen it, but this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, right? And, and David just he just smiled and he said, uh, we'll only do four verses a week. Anybody who memorizes scripture, that's a lot of scripture. And I'm going to tell you something. I worked and labored and I, and I wrote it down. I had that little Sony taper card. You remember that little taper card you press? I record myself, play it back. My wallpaper in my house was the, was the Romans passage. And I worked really hard. And I memorized, it took me about eight months, Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 8. Just another sidebar, but this is a cool story about how the Lord used this to save my parents. My parents were still so Catholic, they were very antagonistic to me because they had known the Lord all their life and I was a drug addict who, you know, needed the Lord and my mom used to say, I don't need to be saved like you, I've already always been saved. And I would debate the finer tenets of, you know, Catholic theology, like why Mary is not the co redemptress with Christ, like Jesus is the Savior, not Mary, why we shouldn't pray to saints or uh, why you shouldn't call a man Father, but that did not go over well. And you know with a Catholic, you can't debate those things, right? So met with David in August. Fast forward to Easter that next year. Mom and Dad came home after church where we had the big dinner. Mom, Dad, Grandfather, Johnny and Debbie, Aunt and Uncle and Sister. And after dinner, I just felt prompted, prompted to do this. And I got up and I said, Mom, uh, uh, Dad, is it okay? I just want to quote something to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God gave beforehand to all who in Rome We're loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that I have a plan to come to you so that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I don't want you to be aware that I've been prevented from doing so up until now. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So I go through chapter 1 and you can hear a pin drop. They never heard anything like this. And then when I hit chapter 2, that you can start to see tears in their eyes. And when I got to Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free in Christ And the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, Christ did. You know when that got to then? Who shall separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor powers uh, nor anything in all of creation. Separate us from the love of Christ through Christ Jesus our Lord. I'd love to say mom and dad got saved that day. They didn't. But they would three years later. And here's what my parents told me. They said, Robbie, we knew that day that Jesus moved from being a fad or an addition to your life. We realized Jesus was your treasure. And we realized that this wasn't just some fly by night thing, that this was your life. And so here's the thing, it's the Word of God spoken by the man of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to the people of God for the glory of God, right? Okay, so um, back to the question. Did I answer the question? One-on-one. Okay, let me give you two more. Two more. We're done. We're done. This is not in the notes. Two more. We're done. Two more. You can see I'm pretty excited about discipleship. Anybody can tell? (laughs) Okay. Um, Another one is, and this is the trump card, Jesus didn't do it. Like he had close encounters, but here's the thing about Jesus' ministry. Jesus always discipled people one-on-one. Watch this. Out of the group, never in place of the group. So Peter, he would pull aside for, like, hey, Pete, come on, let's talk over here. Jesus, you're scaring the guys. to let all this talk about death. Like, Khaled, you're, you're ruining the morale of the team. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Talking to Peter, right? Or when he'd pull Peter aside in John 21. So he always pulled one-on-one relationships out of the group, never in place of the group. Now, here's the final one. This is the trump card. Uh, not the trump card. I don't like that word. Um, <laughs> I'm playing. This is, the, uh, this is the crescendo of all of them. There's a difference between multiplication and addition. Okay? Multiplication and addition. If you do the math here, and it's in I wrote this in growing up, the difference between a guy who goes out and leads one person to the Lord every year, as opposed to a disciple maker who invests in two. Okay. Uh, so this is the disciple maker, this is an evangelist. If an evangelist goes out year one, and leads one person to the Lord every year. At the end of the year, he's gonna lead 365 people to the Lord. Year two, what, 720, okay? By year eight, it doesn't look very different. I think this is 250. So this guy invests in two and the two multiply, okay? And then those multiply. You see how this works, okay? I think that's right. I know this is right. I know this is right. (laughs) Year eight, I think it's like something like, Chris, what's the math on this? 25 I think it's like 25 okay but here's the thing when you get to year 16 this person has only led I can't remember you got to go look in the book but anyway this one is like 16 million people and if you do it to year 30 it's the world multiple times over so here's the question I tell people and here's the thing about a one-on-one ministry we had some people critique us in Chattanooga and say you know you guys do three to five, but we like to do one-on-one. I asked him, I said, how many, how many groups of one-on-one reproduce? Like how many, think about your ministry. How many guys you invested in or girls who then went on and discipled someone else? Because that's the goal of discipleship. That's why our ministry is called Replicate. Because we believe the discipleship process is not complete until the mentee becomes a mentor or the player becomes a coach, right? That's how you know it's working. He said, and I thank God for his honesty, he said 25% of the times the, group, the groups replicate. So I said, let me get this straight. Every four years you see someone replicate their life. Was what he's saying. I said, our number is 60% roughly. So if we disciple three to five, look at the math. So if we disciple five, which is normally what we do, three we replicate every year. And if you do the math on that, it still hits this. See what I'm saying? So it's a difference between multiplication and division. I mean, multiplication and uh, addition. So the book that has this is Growing Up. I think it should be here. The book that has, so Growing Up is what we use in every group we meet with, along with the foundations. Rediscovering Discipleship is a book for church staff. It's everything I'm telling you here and how to do it in a church staff context. So uh, what do you do with difficult people? How do you respond to people who don't show up and things like that? So you understand yeah, absolutely. You yeah. You think? You think? <laughs> okay, here's what I tell people. <laughs> uh, you know, pastors, we, we are guilty of putting more things on our people's schedules and making them feel guilty for not showing up. I know I'm meddling, but you get the point, right? I mean, that's what we do. Uh, what we say at Long Holloway, and people have asked me this. They say, you're saying worship, life group, you're asking me to add another step on an already busy process. I had a guy who was training a church staff one time, Pastor listen to me speak on discipleship, said, Can I interview you for his staff? There's about 100 people in the room, wives and staff, or husbands and wives and staff. And he said, uh, How am I going to ask this staff who are already busy, already taxed, to add another thing to their schedule? Right? That's a great question. So I asked them the same question I'll ask you guys. Anybody ever go to lunch with anybody? All the time. You ever go to breakfast with anybody? Chick fil A? Uh, Cracker Barrel, a.k.a. Discipleship Central. Do you know they'll let you do discipleship groups there for free? I love it. Starbucks will too. Free real estate, right? Uh, So what I tell people is don't add something to an already busy schedule. Just multiply and maximize what you already do. So once a week go to a secular place. Hey listen, there's nothing more exciting than taking a bunch of men to a restaurant opening bibles on the table and getting them in the word and i'm telling you it'll t- it'll be a ripple effect to the people we did this for a year uh, in chattanooga we saw the owner saved we saw the waitresses saved. people would stop us and say listen i don't know who you guys are but praise god for you or people would say hey can you pray for us my mom's got i don't know i don't want to bother you we say sure i've actually been waiting for you to come <laughs> we definitely can pray for you so it's it's uh adding to an already uh schedule. okay let me talk about what you're and we'll finish with this Patrick, this was your question, okay? The question is, um, most Southern Baptist churches that I pastor, or most churches in general, have this scenario, Sunday morning, pastor teaches on one topic, particular text on a sermon, okay? Then you leave the Sunday morning message and do what? Go to, well, Sunday school. Don't forget Sunday school or small group, right? How many people have a small group on campus? Anybody? Your your small groups. How many people off campus? Regardless, you go to small group. Normally, in this scenario, it's a different sermon by a different text by a different teacher. Then you come back for Sunday what? Sunday night. The pastor undercuts the impact of his morning sermon himself by preaching a what? Different sermon, different text, different topic. No offense if you do this. I pastor this church. Then you come back on Wednesday night, and you do, albeit a devotional, but it's still a devotional time where you have a prayer time on another sermon, another text, another topic. And if you're super spiritual, you go to a Bible study on Tuesday morning or Thursday night, right? Another text, another topic, another message. And here's the thing, five different sermons, five different messages, and I'll show you how this works. How many people in here, watch this, can tell me your pastor's points from Sunday? Anybody? Pastor, you tell me your own points. I could tell you mine, right? I can't tell you mine either, right? But here's the thing. Here's why. We have got caught up in in America, in Western culture, with thinking, and and this is a Greek-Roman influence, with thinking that we grow through what I call transfer of information, okay? We think that if you just take another class and you learn more information and you hear another seminar, uh, and I'm not saying those are bad because we're, we're at a seminar. But what I'm saying is, it's just learning more. If you just, if you just go to seminar and get that sheep's I command, you're going to be good and we'll let you serve. But what, what's interesting is, Jesus had a very different model. Okay? The Eastern culture, which I've studied uh, for the last decade, just how they learn. It's not through transfer of information. Transformation comes, watch this, through reiteration and repetition. Okay, and I'll prove it to you. I was reading the Mishnah one time, uh, just studying something, and I came across this line. The Mishnah is a commentary in the first century on the Old Testament. So it would be like the sayings of rabbis for the, uh, for the Old Testament. Here's what one of the rabbis said. You're going to love this. He who studied his lesson 100 times is not as effective as he who studied it 101 Now that is a foreign concept in America. Like we say, we don't want the iPhone 5. We want the iPhone 20, right? We want the new iPad Pro. We want the new iWatch, right? As we all have, you know, we're, we're, somebody said Apple's the mark of the beast. I don't know, but I've got everything Apple. But anyway, but you know what I'm saying? We want something new. We want the latest, greatest thing. We don't want to go back and study anything old, but that's not the way they learned in the Eastern culture, okay? So here's what we did. They learned through reiteration and repetition. I did this as a, as a trial run two years ago, and our people surprisingly loved it. They didn't, they didn't like it at first, but they did over time. Here's what we did. We started the foundations in January, so all of our people read through the F-260 individually, okay? So everybody's reading. Uh, one through five days individually. So Genesis 1 through 11, I think was that week. Then on Sunday, they would come into the sermon and guess what I would preach on? One of the passages they read from the week. And here's here's what was amazing. The sermon was on the F260. What was amazing is, toward the middle of the year, it was so much anticipation, people were trying to guess what I was going to preach on. They'd call and say, listen, are you going to preach on the Passover in Exodus 11, or are you going to preach over Exodus 3, the burning bush? And I'd say, mom, you have to wait. Right? That, was my, that was my mom. Right? That was that's true. Like, you gotta wait. <laughs> and it was built-in accountability. You know how I encourage our people to read? By preaching on something they've read. Then they left there and did a life group. Guess what the life group was? It wasn't master teacher in rows, it was facilitation in circles. This is what we did. We changed the whole model. Life groups were about the F-260, what uh, the sermon. And we implemented what I just talked about. So instead of hearing a sermon on stewardship and then walking into a life group and hearing a sermon on missions, which is fine, disconnected, you heard a sermon on stewardship and you walked into your group and you, you heard, how are you going to be a good steward of your finances? What are some ways you can steward your, your talents, right? Then we met for D Group. You're going to love this. Guess what the D Group's reading? The F260. Now watch the difference. We just multiply the impact and then I did guys a Facebook Live back then where I took questions on the weekly reading. Just did it Facebook Live. Watch the difference. Sunday morning to Sunday school, different message. You just cut the impact in a half. Sunday school to Sunday night, you just cut your impact of Sunday in a third. Wednesday night, you cut it by a fourth and uh, Tuesday morning, Thursday night by a fifth. On this model, we multiplied it by two, multiplied it by three, multiplied it by four, multiplied it by five. Now watch this, here's the X factor. Parents now discipled their kids at home, we have an F260 for kids, out of the overflow of what they read during the day. The reason your parents don't disciple their kids is because they don't know what to say. John Wesley said, I don't study the Bible to preach, I preach because I've studied the Bible. And so you see the impact here. And so the question I ask pastors is, what kind of impact do you want to have? Do you want to have a divisive impact or a multiplicative impact? Now, you can't do all of this, but you can do some of this. You can make your sermons match your life groups. You can make the individual reading match your D groups and your kids groups. So does that make sense? And this is a lot. I'm trying to explain a lot in a little bit of time. But are we done, Chris? I'll be, around, I'll be around at the table after the talk. Okay, one more question. Okay. So I came into a situation where the guy I followed was, was a great textual preacher, uh, and he was a master storyteller, which I was not uh, when I first came to Long Hollow. And so I came, I'm, I mean, I'm like of the plat th- thread, you know, 55-minute exegetical, expository, deep. All my illustrations are Spurgeon and Calvin and Wesley. And I follow a guy who could tell a 20 minute story and have the church laughing and then it hit him with the truth. So here's what I tell preachers going into context. Not only do you need to study the context of your people, you need to study the context of the preaching you came into because what I realized was I needed to add personally more personal illustrations and I always was against personal illustrations because I'd rather opt for one of the, the forefathers of the faith. Uh, But here's what one of my staff guys said. It's not that our people don't like you. It's a long story. (laughs) It's a long story. (laughs) Yeah, and there were people who didn't like me. But uh, it's that our people don't know you. So you're coming into this context where they knew this guy for... The pastor I followed died of cancer at 51, at the height of the ministry, 18 years of crazy growth. Church, one year we grew over 1,000 people one year. Just mind-blowing growth. He dies at the height of the ministry. So not only do they not want a new pastor they don't want to lose the old pastor, and they don't want me. No offense. And so I come in just preaching the way I've always preached at Brainerd Baptist Church, high church, choir, orchestra, suits, and um, people, you know, expository preaching is an acquired taste, you know, textual preaching. But here's the cool thing about it. Once you acquire the taste, you can't go back to sirloin steak. You want filet mignon all the time, right? So, Um, I would say study your context, study the preaching previously to you, and just be patient with people. You're in it for the long haul. Young leaders, write this down, I'll finish with this. Young leaders do suffer from two problems, I think. And whether you're young in age or young in your ministry context. You can tend to overestimate what God does in the short term, but we underestimate what God can do over the long haul. And yes, there are probably things that need to be changed in your church context, but you're in this thing for the long haul, and you didn't get here overnight, it's not gonna change overnight. Somebody told me a long time ago, how do you get rid of a stump, or what do you do with a stump in your backyard? There's two ways to do, deal with it. You can throw a grenade and you can blow it up, but there's a lot of shrapnel. Or you can just mow around it. <laughs> I just mow around a lot of stumps, you know? And not that we have stumps at Long Hollow, but I've, I've had them in the past, so. Does that help? I could talk to you after. Uh, I've got a book I just wrote on preaching for people without Greek and Hebrew, just came out last year, called Preaching for the Rest of Us. And I talk about preaching to make disciples in there.
0: You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, Disciple Makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.